In one way or another, the, the questions that we're asking about the church, about uh, being a Christian, about how we understand our faith, really comes back down to, boils down to the question of what is the kingdom like? What does the kingdom look like? What is the kingdom about? What's, what's the, the mission of the kingdom? What's the power of the kingdom? What's the passion of the kingdom? How do you describe the kingdom? This is such an important question because the scripture seems to tell us that the kingdom is a direct reflection of the king. And so what we say about the kingdom and what we believe about the kingdom, we are in essence saying, this is what we believe about God, who is the king of the kingdom. The characteristics of the kingdom are the characteristics of God. What we believe is the passion of the kingdom is the passion of God. What we believe is the mission of the kingdom is the mission of God. And so it sets that question into a much more serious context because we don't just talk about the kingdom, we're really talking about God. And Jesus comes to reveal the nature of the kingdom and the nature of God. And the season of Epiphany, this idea of revelation and manifestation, a part of that of this season is looking at the early days of Jesus' ministry and and asking, what does Jesus reveal? What does Jesus manifest about the kingdom? What is he telling us about who God is and what God's kingdom is about? Because it sets the stage for everything else that Jesus is going to tell us and all about his ministry that eventually goes to the cross and the tomb and Pentecost and beyond. And one of the places that the church has, has looked at in this season as giving us an understanding of the kingdom and what Jesus is revealing is this passage from Luke chapter 4. Jesus is beginning his ministry and things are going well. He's all around the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel and the people are loving him. They are amazed at his teachings. He keeps going to synagogues and all these different communities and teaching. And they are astounded at his teaching. And the word is spreading that Jesus has got something that we want. And people are embracing him and loving him. And then he comes to the town of Nazareth, his hometown. It's always hard to come home. You you go away from a place for... 10, 15, 20 years, and and it was a good place for you, and life was great there, and you go back, and it's never quite exactly the same. Things change. We change. Every time I read this passage, I think of a phone conversation I had about 25 years ago. Out of the blue, I got a call from someone who was a part of the the church in Evansville, Indiana, where I was raised. And my dad was the pastor. And they were wondering if I might be interested in talking with them about becoming the pastor of their church. And my first thought was, oh, that would be awesome. I get to go back home. Uh, Much of my spiritual formation took place in that church. 
I have great feelings about that church. I get to reconnect with a lot of friends who still live in Evansville that I hadn't seen for a long time. And I was, my mind was racing about this could be really great. And so I said, well, let me think about it. I hung up the phone. And then I really began to think about it. And I realized this is going to be hard. I was 18 when I left there. And this has now been 20-some years later, probably. And maybe not even that long. And so I'm thinking, I'm picturing standing up in front of the congregation or leading a meeting and, and saying something challenging, trying to get the congregation to move and trying to, to you know, say some things that might be hard and watching those who knew me as a child look at me and say, what are you talking to us about that for? I remember when you did that. Yeah, I know, I know. And I decided maybe it wasn't a good idea. It's hard to go home. Jesus comes into Nazareth, and the people embrace him. And he comes into the synagogue, and they hand him the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolls it to chapter 61, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is talking about me. And they think it's great. I sort of had this sense, even though they're saying, isn't that Joseph's son? Didn't he build this cabinet for us? Didn't, didn't, he, didn't he put up that, the framing of that house for us? I sort of had the feeling at the same time they're saying, wow, such a great success from our hometown. This is awesome. I don't think they quite grasp everything that he's saying, but they're okay with it. But Jesus can't leave it alone. He has this, Jesus never can quite leave it alone, can he? You know, if he just stopped there, he would have walked out of the synagogue, the hero, I mean, they would have given him the Gatorade bath and it would have been the whole thing. It would have been awesome, Right? This is terrific. But he can't let it go. And he says to them, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. Do in your hometown what you've done in all these other places. And he says, let me just remind you of a couple of stories. And when he gets done telling the stories, they grab him, drag him out of the synagogue, and attempt to throw him off a cliff. Some stories, right? I mean, his people who are cheering him on and thinking this is great are now ready to kill him. Because he tells a couple of stories. Actually, just reminds them of a couple of stories. And these are not parables that Jesus creates. These are stories that are a part of their scriptures. He takes them back to the days of the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And he says about Elijah, in the days of Elijah... During this time of famine, there were all kinds of widows in Israel. But God didn't send him to any of those widows. He sent them to a widow in Sidon. Sidon is the hometown of the most infamous, probably the most infamous queen in Israel, Jezebel. 
Sidon is all about Baal worship. And Jezebel brings that with her when she marries Ahab and institutes that into the Israelite culture. And not only that, but she murders hundreds, if not thousands, of of God's prophets. I mean, in many ways, she is the personification of, of evil in that day. And when God chooses a widow to connect with Elijah to help him and him to help, that's where he sends him. And you can sort of sense the hair on the back of their necks beginning to stand up. What are you trying to say, Jesus? He said, but then he tells another story. He says, now in times of Elisha, there were a lot of people who had leprosy in Israel. But God didn't send the prophet to any of them. He didn't heal any of them. He healed Naaman, who was a captain in the Syrian army. And the Syrians and the Israelites simply did not get along. In fact, they hated each other. They were, the Syrians were continually attacking Israel. They did it during the reign of David. David kept rebuffing them and defeating them. But eventually, they started making inroads. And it would not be uncommon at all for them to to send raiding parties into northern Israel and and destroy things and take a bunch of captives back with them, which is exactly how Naaman got connected with Elisha in the first place. There was a, a young girl who was a slave from Israel, and she told him about Elisha. And now they're really irritated. Just because he tells them a couple of stories, their own stories. And I think they're irritated so much so that they're ready to murder Jesus. Because in essence, Jesus is saying that God's kingdom is not about, it's not about your heritage. It's about faith. God's kingdom is not about necessarily following the rules. It's about faith. I mean, Israel has a problem with these other nations, not just because they're enemies, but because they reject Yahweh. And they they try to get the Israelites to turn away from Yahweh. They don't follow the rules. They don't practice all the, the, the rituals that the Israelites are commanded to practice. They don't do it right. And even if they have faith, they don't do it right. And so therefore, they deserve to be rejected. They're not supposed to be in the kingdom. In fact, part of the reason we exist as this people is to keep them out of the kingdom. And Jesus says, having faith and not obeying the rules is better than obeying the rules and having no faith. And to people who have staked everything religiously on obeying the rules, that's not a word they want to hear. I suspect if all of us thought about it a minute, we probably would be able to think of a people group that we think don't follow the rules and they really shouldn't be considered a part of the kingdom. It may be someone who has different political views, someone with different theological views, somebody from certain countries of the world, someone who who maybe has lived such a, a terrible life and and then they they make a 
a turnaround, but we're skeptical about whether they really mean it or if they're just trying to get out of trouble. We all build walls. We all, we all have, we all see things through our, our filter of judgment. And I think this passage is telling us, at least one thing is telling us, is that in the kingdom, we can't do that. Because the the hardest part about all of this is that Jesus says to the people of Nazareth, in essence, they're in and you're not. It's not just they're in with you, but your hearts are hard. You don't have faith. And therefore, you're on the outside of the kingdom looking in. And they have faith despite everything else, and they're on the inside looking out. You know, this, this, many people connect Isaiah 61 with uh, the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. The year of Jubilee was uh, every 50th year. The, uh, the God said, We're gonna, some things are going to change here. There are three things, three basic things that are involved in the year of Jubilee. One is in that the land rests. They don't plant anything. What's interesting is that they don't plant every seven years. So that means they don't plant the 49th year and they don't plant the 50th year. In order to give the land a rest, and I would suspect to give the Israelites a chance to really trust God. Because they aren't, they aren't harvesting anything for two years. They aren't planting anything in the soil for two years. And God says, trust me, I will take care of you. The second thing that happens is that people who have had to give up their land for whatever reason get it back. All the land returns back to its original owner every 50 years. And so if you lost your land by mismanagement or you had a debt and this was the way you paid off your debt and your family land was given to someone else and the year of Jubilee, it came back to you. And the third thing is that all the slaves, all the Israelite slaves, were set free. So if you had a debt and you couldn't pay it and you didn't have land to sell to someone, you indentured yourself to another Israelite. And you became their slave, but only until the year of Jubilee. And when the year of Jubilee came, all the debts are cleared and you're set free. And it became not just a, an every 50-year event, but it actually became something that was symbolic of the, of the eschatological understanding of the kingdom. That when the Messiah comes, he is going to do all of this on this massive scale. And instead of going back... Every 50 years, he's going to do something once and for all to release Israel and to, re- and to bless Israel and to give Israel all the things that they've dreamed of through the years. He's going to be the ultimate jubilee. And it was so ingrained into their mindset and their culture. This is what they're looking for. And when Jesus says, this is me, that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, they're hearing Jesus say, now I'm going to set Israel free. And then he throws them this curve and says, I'm going to set them free too. 
And really, you're going to be set free if you have faith. The thing that scares me the most about this story is that for me, and I would suspect for many of us, if we had to place ourselves in this story, more than likely, we're the people in the synagogue in Nazareth. We know. We've been around it. We've lived it. We follow the rules. And the question for us is, but do we live in a spirit of faith? Do we live in a spirit of openness to God? Or are we so blinded by our, by our filters that, that we just can't imagine God ever getting through to these people? And you know, this widow, the widow who had faith didn't mean that everybody in Sidon had faith, but she did. It didn't mean that everybody in Syria had faith, but Naaman did. And we paint these groups with such broad strokes that we we lump everyone together and we place our judgment on them all together when all the while God's at work in individual people's lives. And it's hard for us to see that, to anticipate that or expect that or sometimes even want that. And the problem with our hard-heartedness toward other people is that you cannot be hard-hearted toward people and not be hard-hearted toward God. And that's the danger. That's what Jesus is saying to them. They're totally missing the work of God. Jesus comes back to Nazareth at least one other time we have recorded, and it says he couldn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And it, it gives me pause. Think about myself. Think about us. I want to be able to believe that God's work is bigger than the walls that I create and the judgments that I make and the filters through which I see things. And faith isn't the end, it's, but it is the beginning. And it's awesome that we know so much about the scriptures and it's awesome that we know a lot about how to, to live as Christians and, and, and our ethics and our morals are connected to that and, and we shouldn't shun those But in the midst of all of that is the heart of it, faith, trust, openness to God. Yesterday at the the seminar that Lilius Trotter Center put on, which was terrific, so good, so helpful. um, but, But the one theme that kept going through everyone's presentation was the sense that in order to, to, be, to be Christ to Muslims, we can't just see them as Muslims. We have to see each person as, as someone created in the image of God. Someone who is loved by God. Someone for whom Christ died. And Christ came. And to begin to shatter the walls and the barriers that we put up about groups of people that we just don't think 
are worthy. And we do that because we have forgotten that we aren't worthy. None of us. We're going to come to this table here in just a couple of minutes. And and this is a table of grace. If we came to this table because any, we only came to this table because we earned it, we would all stay in our seats. None of us are that good. But the grace of God in Christ changes us and invites us and welcomes us. And he's simply asking for faith, for trust. As little as or as much as we know. Do we want Jesus? To have a spirit of openness to Jesus. A spirit of faith and trust in how we live our lives. I've got to be honest, this passage scares me. Not just because of who I think I am in the story, or at least might be in the story. But because something in the back of my mind is always wanting to say, yeah, but. And Jesus doesn't seem to say that. He just says, I want faith. I want you to trust me. I want hearts that are open to me. Because eventually, the alternative to that is the modern day spiritual equivalent of wanting to throw Jesus off a cliff. I pray that God will fill us with faith. Holy Father, we want to thank you for your grace to us. We do not deserve it, but we are desperate for it. Soften our hardened hearts. Give us the mind and the spirit of Jesus. Give us eyes to see as Jesus sees and hearts that desire Jesus. Father, we pray for your anointing and your blessing upon the bread and the cup here before us today. We pray that it will be food for our souls and that as we come, we will come in a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done for us and in a spirit of faith and openness for what you, we want you to do for others. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.